Hello, and welcome to Thank the Academy, the podcast where we talk about every Academy Award-winning Best Picture in order. This is the Academy Archives, and this week we're discussing Academy Award-winning films Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate, and Academy Award-winning actress Audrey Hepburn. We're your hosts, Zach and Kristen, and that's our producer, Kayla. Howdy. Hello. Hello. We're back for another Academy Archives. Huzzah. Yeah, excited about this one. Yeah, we were talking about this during our last episode, but it was just such a good year for the film industry. Yeah, and I wish that we could talk about so many more of the films uh, from 1967. Yeah. Uh, But I whittled it down to these two, uh, (laughs) doing something a little bit different. I've talked about multiple films in an episode before, back in the early days when we didn't have archives episodes. But I'm going to just talk about both Bonnie and Clyde, and The Graduate, and mostly just like, I don't know, how the film world is changing. (laughs) Couldn't decide, I guess. Yeah, and you're going to talk about Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, the icon of American film. Yes. But first, some interesting facts. Yes. Some fun Hollywood facts for you. Yeah. I'll go first. All right. My interesting fact is about Charlie Chaplin. Okay, we have not talked about him in a minute. Yes. In 1967, his last film debuted. Aw, wow. Yeah. Like lots of little interesting factoids about uh, this, his last film. Um, So it's called The Countess from Hong Kong. It stars Sophia Loren and Marlon Brando. Wow. Pretty interesting. It came out in 1967. It was a total flop. (laughs) <laughs> um, the last film that he did before this was 10 years prior to this film. Oh, that's tough. So it's the longest stretch of time between directing things for him. Uh-huh. This is also the first and sole color and widescreen film that he directed. Oh, my. So he waited 10 years and then decided to branch out. Yeah. It's also the first film of his ever to be funded by a major Hollywood studio. Oh, yeah. Universal. It was also one of only two films during his entire career that he did not play a starring role in. Oh, wow. So, yeah, pretty interesting. It's a very, like, odd break from him in all senses. (laughs) (laughs) So that's The Countess from Hong Kong. All right. I have never seen it, and I probably will not see it. Yeah, probably most people have not who know stuff about him. Interesting. My uh, fun fact for you today is about Audrey Hepburn. There are so many fun facts about her, but this was one that I just, uh, I was just, I don't know. I thought it was very interesting when I was reading about her life. Um, So as we all know, obviously, her name is Audrey Hepburn. Mm -hmm. Where does Hepburn come from? Hmm. So Hepburn is from her father's name. Uh, Her father was born Joseph Victor Anthony Rustin, but he later on, changed his his last name instead of just being Rustin to being Hepburn Rustin. And the reason for this, and this, I also want to just to preface this with that he's not a good guy. Like he, yeah, he was not. He abandoned his family. He uh, supported fascism uh, and was very pro-Nazi, you know, all these things. Audrey Hepburn tried to reconnect with him later in life and he wanted nothing to do with her, even though he she paid him a bunch of like money for his needs, whatever. So he's not a good guy. But anyways, he wanted to sound more aristocratic and he very mistakenly believed that he was descended from James Hepburn, the third husband of Mary, Queen of Scots. 
And so he ran with this for quite a while. This name is because uh, his maternal grandmother's maiden name was Kathleen Hepburn. And so he believed that she was descended from him, leading to him. Mm. And so then, like, he kind of went around like this. And he was doing, like, sneaky things anyway. When he met Audrey Hepburn's mother, he was living off of his first wife's inheritance and hadn't had a job, like, all these things. And so part of his appeal was his aristocratic title Mm -hmm. and that he had this distinguished lineage back to Mary Queen of Scots. But uh, it was false. It was not true. So, (laughs) but um, so when Audrey was born, she was born Audrey Hepburn Rustin. And eventually she dropped the Rustin in order to sound more English. Hmm. So nice. Slimy dude. And as I was reading about this whole foray, I was like, this is just so ridiculous. This guy wants to be royal. Yeah. Don't we all? Yeah. Well, shall I get into it? Yeah, you've got a lot to get into, so may as well get it started. Yeah, grab onto your bootstraps. Uh, So the first film I'm going to be talking about is Bonnie and Clyde. So I'm going to do the regular thing and give a little recap of each of them when I get to them. But my focus is more, uh, is a little bit different from what I usually do. You'll see. Okay. Um, So a recap of Bonnie and Clyde. Clyde Barrow meets Bonnie Parker, and they instantly fall in love over their mutual interest in petty crime. Eventually, they begin making a name for themselves, committing bigger felonies and coming away with bigger sums. They make enemies all over the state of Texas until the manhunt catches up with them and they are killed together. Love. Yes. Um, so this film had a budget of $2.5 million, um, and it ended up grossing $70 million. Oh, my heavens. It grossed $22 million in 1967, so it was the third highest grossing film of that year. Mm-hmm. This film came to be when writer friends David Newman and Robert Benton came up with an idea to recapture the magic of the early Hollywood gangster B-movies, but for a new audience. This may be a dumb question. Is this where Bonnie and Clyde originates, or is there like a story before this and they're just doing a movie version? No, Bonnie and Clyde are real. Okay, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Okay, they're real people. So it's all based on like their real okay. life. Okay. For a second, I thought maybe I was crazy and like this is the original story somehow. No. Okay. But their movie was not based on somebody's book about that. Okay, them. this is an original screenplay. Yeah. So these writers were inspired by French New Wave filmmakers Francois Truffaut and Jean-Luc Godard. Um, Eventually, Warren Beatty got his hands on the script, fresh off the disappointment of being mostly cut from the last two films that he was in. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Funny enough, the last film before this one that he was mostly cut from was What's New Pussycat? Hmm. And it is a film that caused both him and Woody Allen to turn to producing because they both were cut from it so much (laughs) that they were like, there has to be a better way. (laughs) Pretty interesting. So, of course, he decides his best bet is to try his hand at producing. Um, This is something that has already been done by a few actors, like the actor-producer thing. Sure. It's most common, of course, as like a director-producer or a Mm writer-producer up to this point. Burt Lancaster is probably one of the only like major players to really do this, besides Mm -hmm. like Charlie Chaplin and some of the like old Hollywood guard. But because of the studio model, this idea was never possible. Yeah. Um, So Beatty optioned the script for $7,500 and began shopping it to Warner Brothers. Um, Jack Warner was very hesitant to go back to the B-movie fair of Warner Brothers past, 
but ended up being in the middle of his own departure from the studio. So his opinion didn't end up mattering. (laughs) Beatty and Warner Brothers tried to bring in lots of different stars for the leads. Um, Beatty was still unsure whether or not he actually wanted to be in the film Mm. or if he just wanted to produce it and try to start like making a production company. Mm. Part of the reason also that he didn't know if he wanted to be in it is he kind of wanted his sister, Shirley MacLaine, to play Bonnie. Oh, interesting. And so he was like, well, we're not going to play lovers, obviously. (laughs) Um, But I could produce this film for her to star in. I'm glad he at least had the wherewithal to think that. Yes. He also struggled to get a director involved. Um, He reached out to George Stevens, William Wyler, and Sidney Pollack um, before finally being able to convince Arthur Penn to agree to direct it. And he basically had to like beg him, which Hmm. is very strange. Once Beatty decided to take the role of Clyde, it meant he had to cast someone else as Bonnie, of course. (laughs) Um, He really wanted Natalie Wood to take the part, um, but she was on a hiatus from acting uh, because of her mental health, and she wanted more time to go to therapy. Good for you, Natalie. Yes, she is in the hard time of her life. Poor Natalie Wood. Um, He ended up auditioning Tuesday Weld, Sharon Tate, Jane Fonda, and Anne Margaret, among other actresses Mm. at the time, um, finally deciding on Faye Dunaway, who was a total newcomer. Okay. And one thing that's really, really strange about the story of this film is he comes across as like a really cool, nice person, and he ends up being like one of the Hollywood darlings throughout the rest of his career, but he lobbied so hard to have her not have top billing with him. Even though it was called Bonnie and Clyde, he he wanted top billing. And he was like, if we give her top billing, it's going to ruin the whole movie. And like, no one will come watch it. And her character's name is first. Right. It's very, very strange thing that I didn't know anything about until I started reading up on this one. He ended up relenting because he was like, oh, she's actually good. (laughs) Yeah. The main key to the film and their relationship, of course, is the love story, um, Mm -hmm. which is what gave everyone the most pause when they were trying to make this. Because up to this point in Hollywood, and especially in old gangster stuff, the gangsters were always the bad guys. Uh And the cops were always the good guys. Uh That's why the Keystone Cops films were so fun and popular and comedies. And also, like... You know, you couldn't show people committing crimes and not going to prison because of the code. And you also didn't want to, like, humanize them in any way. Yeah. Criminals in general. Part of what happened here is then Beatty did not send the code, the script. He didn't care if the code was going to agree with it or not. But he didn't send the code, the script, until literally, like, the week before they started production. Wow. So there was no time for them to say anything about it. (laughs) Like it was going to be made regardless. But it's interesting because then the love story in the film is what makes you want to root for the gangsters. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And of course, they end up racking up like a huge body count throughout the film, (laughs) uh, which is something very new for them. And originally, the writers wrote Clyde to be bisexual. But then they decided that that was pushing the boundaries too far. They were really trying to go for it. They really were. So then uh, in the film, it's implied that he is impotent, which is just another interesting take on the relationship, too. It just Mm -hmm. adds more nuance to it in an otherwise like Hollywood history full of just, you know, lukewarm romance with no nuance. Yeah. 
Interesting. Um, it also adds a really interesting dynamic in the relationship because Bonnie is very free with her sexuality and mm-hmm. desires and is constantly like being the one to be like, like hey, I want to sleep with you. And like, yeah, she's like more of the aggressor sometimes. Yeah. Which is another oddity for yeah. film at the time. Well, and it makes her a very powerful woman. Yes. Um, another step forward in the film world was the use of violence, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so the romantic and comedic overtones of the film give the violence kind of a fun vibe at first. Yeah, right. Um, especially because it is very Keystone Cop style or that early slapstick style where there's like, it's very fast paced. There's lots of like slapping, knocking things over. It's kind of raucous and classic Hollywood fighting. But then people get shot. And they, they die, die, and they are bleeding also. Ooh. There's a lot of blood in Wow, this. yeah, yeah, yeah. So rather than the traditional Hollywood, like, little bits of a fight cut together that, like, lessens the effect of the reality of the moment, uh-huh. it's very much like these people are shooting these people, and these people are dying because of it. Wow, yeah. Um, it's one of the first Hollywood films to extensively use squibs. Oh. So for people who don't know, these are, like, little kind of mini explosive devices that you put underneath your clothing or your makeup and then when you're being shot at by a prop gun they explode inside your clothing and then blood comes out of your clothing it's how you can make realistic looking yeah yeah. whether it's actual like i mean it's not actually realistic to what it looks like when somebody gets shot but like It's the Hollywood version. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And because of all of this, the violence is really glorified, actually. Like, they're meant to look good and cool. Yeah, while while they're they're killing people. Violence, yeah. Yeah. Especially when they are, like, killing authorities and cops. (laughs) Because they don't, they really don't want to kill regular people. And they make it their mission to, like, when they're robbing banks, like, there's a scene and. They say that, like, this is based on maybe a true rumor, too, where, like, they're getting people's loans out of the bank and, like, burning them so they don't owe money anymore. Love it. (laughs) Love it. All about that. Meanwhile, they're, like, killing all the cops. So they're kind of like a dark Robin Hood. Yeah. And that's what, I mean, they were in it for fun. Yeah. They just like Ugh. thought it was so fun. They wanted to help their fellow man. They, you know, <laughs> had a passionate love affair that was only made steamier by the violence. Mm-hmm. Man, yeah. There's a reason why they're iconic as characters. Yeah. Uh the last thing I'll say about Bonnie and Clyde, the other reason why I, I wanted to make sure that I mentioned it is because it involves our main man a little bit. Bosley? Bosley. So his review of Bonnie and Clyde was notoriously negative. Okay. All right. Lay it on me. Um, He has gotten to sort of the end of his career. Yeah, he's getting crotchety. And he's getting behind Mm -hmm. the times a bit. Um, So his main quote that kind of endured is, quote, it is a cheap piece of bald-faced slapstick comedy that treats the hideous depredations of that sleazy, moronic pair as though they were as full of fun and frolic as the jazz age cut-ups in Thoroughly Modern Millie. 
Wow, that is quite the take. Yeah. That's a very uh, aggressive. Well, and he just wrote article after article about how horrible it was, mm. how the violence was really bad, how he couldn't believe how Hollywood had changed. Mm. And it was it's very interesting to go and read those. Yeah. Especially considering like his track record. Yeah. Well, and as we've been talking about with this year, you can very clearly see that Hollywood is not the Hollywood we used to know anymore. Yeah. And I think that can be tough, maybe especially for a film critic who is used to judging things a certain way. Mm -hmm. And now everything is changing and it's hard to keep up with your tastes and all those kinds of things. So, mm -hmm. To be honest, this review ended up kind of ending his career Oof. in a weird turn of events uh -huh. um it just was kind of realized that he wasn't on the pulse of things the yeah. way that he once was mm -hmm. um the people who were giving it good reviews roger ebert gave yep. it a good uh -huh. review um <laughs> he's kind of on the pulse now at this point um the other very popular uh future popular critic um who kind of came onto the scene because of her good review is pauline kale she ended up writing a really lengthy freelance essay that got published in The New Yorker, uh -oh. which then led to her being the main film critic for The New Yorker uh -huh. from 1968 to the 90s. Okay. So, New blood on the scene. Yeah. So, yeah. Times are changing. Yeah. Well, and as we've been saying, the old guard is moving on. They're not up to date anymore. Yeah. Um, so jumping on to The Graduate, a little recap of The Graduate, another film that came out this year. Benjamin Braddock, fresh off his college graduation, is nervous about his future. He is talked into taking an older family friend, Mrs. Robinson, home from his graduation party, and he gets the sense that she is interested in having an affair with him for some reason. <laughs> He eventually gives in and begins meeting her at a nearby hotel. The affair continues until he realizes he is actually romantically interested in her daughter, Elaine. Even though Mrs. Robinson forbids him from seeing Elaine, he does so anyway, and they begin having feelings for each other. Several months go by, and the Robinsons set up a marriage between Elaine and another man. But Benjamin shows up as she's taking her vows, and they run off together, not sure what the future might hold. So, again... Another film that sort of like turned the whole genre on its head. Well, and what I was going to say is in your description, honestly, the film is less about those plot points and more about the feeling of the film. Right. But those are major plot points that would never have been allowed <laughs> even five years before this film came out. Yeah. Also, you saw some tatas in this uh -oh. one. So that was new. So this film had a budget of $3 million, um, and it ended up grossing $190 million. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it grossed $43 million, so double what Bonnie and Clyde wow, did. Wow, what a big year. In 1967. So it was number one at the box office that yeah. year. It is still number 23 all time adjusted for inflation. Dang, that's really impressive. So just to give you a sense of what else is around it um number 26 and 27 are forrest gump and mary poppins Whoa. 25 is the godfather oh my gosh um so the graduate is number 23 right behind indiana jones and raiders of the lost ark oh my goodness that's crazy yeah just to give you a sense of like how popular this film actually was at the wow. time 
Well, and I mean, it has infiltrated pop culture so deeply. Yeah. As we were watching it, I hadn't seen it since I was a teenager. When I was a teenager, I didn't get it and I didn't really enjoy it. But I really enjoyed it this time. And it was just so weird mm-hmm. how like, you know, all the lines in the movie somehow or like all the imagery you've seen. Well, and it is all the needle drops. It is. You can draw a line back to this film from basically every independent yeah. romantic comedy yeah. which, from the last like 30 years. Yeah, which like is like my favorite genre of movies. Yeah. And so I was just like so enamored by all of that. And I don't love this movie, but I love the feeling of it and the images in it. Mm-hmm. Well, and it still feels so modern because yeah, of that. Yeah, it so contemporary. <laughs> um, so this is director Mike Nichols' second film, um, though he actually signed on to do this film before he was attached to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Um, oh, okay. So that sort of makes that make a little bit more sense. Yes, that does make more sense. Um, the story came from an almost or supposed autobiography by Charles Webb that he wrote right after graduating college. Um, so he based the main character off of himself. He based his wife off of Elaine and his wife strongly held to the belief that it was not based on her mother, or at least uh, she hoped. That's what she had to tell herself. <laughs> um, Nichols attracted producer Joseph Levine to try his hand at actually producing a film rather than just distributing. Um, I talked about him as one of the biggest distributors of international films um, when he distributed Godzilla, Attila, and Hercules. Right, right, right. So he sort of founded this idea of like repackaging international films, getting a good translator to write the captions, and then like being able to make a lot of money off of international films in America. Nichols had worked with him as a producer on the off-Broadway show The Knack, so they already had a relationship. Mm. Nichols brought on fellow improviser Buck Henry to adapt the novel, so this was his first screenplay, which mm. is also pretty crazy. Um, Nichols ended up working out a deal for $150,000 and one-sixth of the film's profits. Smart man. Which was a genius move. Absolutely. And would eventually make him the first director in Hollywood history to make over a million dollars for one film. Wow. <laughs> Yes. Impressive. Um, So the main thing I want to talk about this um, is the casting. Okay. Because I think more than anything, this film changed what casting looks like for Hollywood. So most of Hollywood's older leading ladies were either auditioned, asked to play Mrs. Robinson, or they themselves asked to come in to read for it. Of course they did. Um, It's an extremely intriguing role for actresses of the time. I mean, it's a very independent woman. Mm Mm-hmm. Very powerful woman. Very sexy. Still gives you a good glamour look, but allows you to get kind of down and dirty and like mm-hmm. show your range a little bit. So here are some women who could have been in oh, this. Oh gosh, I'm so excited. Um, Joan Crawford, of course. Lauren Bacall, and Audrey Hepburn all asked to read for it. Audrey. Yeah. Wow. Um, other actresses who either auditioned or were asked to audition were Sophia Loren. Of course. Judy Garland, Rita oh. Hayworth, Susan Hayward, Deborah Kerr. Eva Marie Saint, Rosalind Russell, Simone Signorette, Lana Turner, Anne Baxter, Angela Lansbury, and Ava Gardner. Wow. Most of those women I can picture, too. Yeah. But honestly, I think we found a winner. Natalie Wood auditioned and turned down both the roles of Mrs. Robinson and Elaine. Wow. 
what the heck is going on <laughs> in Natalie Wood's world? That's weird. Um, Patty Duke turned down the role of Elaine. She was actually ah, the first choice for Elaine. Sense. She was taking a break from acting. Um, Faye Dunaway had to turn it down because of Bonnie and Clyde. Ah. Sally Field and Shirley MacLaine oh. also turned down the Elaine? role of Elaine. Wow. Then Candace Bergen, Goldie Hawn, and Jane Fonda all screen tested for it as well. Huh. Why are they turning down the role of Elaine? Um, for various reasons, either because they're busy or they gotcha. didn't like the brawl or they like didn't want to be second fiddle or like, sure. you know. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so eventually they went with Anne Bancroft as Mrs. Robinson and Catherine Ross as Elaine, two women who are actually only nine years apart in age. Oh my gosh. Hollywood is so mean to women. Yeah. And it's very interesting how the way that they made them up made mm-hmm. them look very different in age. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, they did a really good job about that. Um, of course, Anne Bancroft at this point in her career is already married to Mel Brooks. Living her life. Yes. She's got her Oscar already. Yes. So when Dustin Hoffman auditioned, he read across from Catherine Ross because she was already cast. Mm. Um, and they were asked to do one of the scenes and then kiss at the end. Um, and he had never kissed in a scene before in his acting classes yet. Oh my gosh. Um, it's like being in school. And he said, quote, a girl like Ross would never go for a guy like me in a million years. And she immediately said to that, he looks about three feet tall, so unkempt. This is going to be a disaster. <laughs> this is literally me in my acting class at school. <laughs> um, the producer, Joseph Levine, later admitted that he thought when he saw Hoffman hanging around before the audition, he thought he was some kind of messenger boy <laughs> who had lost his way and ended up in the holding room. <laughs> Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> but strangely enough, he's actually 30 when he filmed this. He looks old to me. Yeah. I don't know how he looks to you, but to me, he looks like an old dude. Yeah. Um, Not old, sorry, So he but. is actually only six years younger than Anne Bancroft. Of course. Oh, gosh. It's infuriating. <laughs> so a few other actors that they auditioned for this part, um, Robert Redford, Warren Beatty, and Charles Grodin all read... Nichols ended up liking the idea that Hoffman really looked like a nobody. Um, yeah, I can see that. That's smart. And was not very traditionally handsome. Yeah. Whereas all these other actors who read for it were already considered right. very traditionally well, handsome. And I think one of the things that's the appeal of The Graduate is that it's like, why are these women clawing for this guy? Right. Few other people who auditioned were Harrison Ford, Jack Nicholson, oh. Steve McQueen, Anthony Perkins, George Hamilton, and Burt Ward. Some of those would be interesting. Yeah. Casting the other three parents brought out more major older Hollywood stars. Of course it did. Um, So Mr. Robinson, they uh, thought about Marlon Brando, Frank Sinatra, and Walter Matthau. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They all auditioned for that part. For Mr. Braddock, Yul Brynner, Kirk Douglas, Jack Lemmon, Carl Malden, and even Ronald Reagan auditioned after he had been governor of California for over a year. Are you serious? Yes. Oh, my heavens. This is the take that I like about this. This is Nichols talking about the casting. Okay. He said, quote, it's the hardest thing I've ever had to cast. These people are so far removed from stock characters. Yeah, that's true. And I think that is a very interesting part of the puzzle of this movie. Yeah. In the Hollywood landscape and history. Because it is so groundbreaking when it comes out that, I mean, now all of these characters that are in this film are types right but at the time they were not because there were no like 
dopey little boy types like this Dustin Hoffman character. And there were not this type that Mrs. Mrs. Robinson is either. Yeah. And also like the other parents. The detached parents that mean well but have no clue what they're saying or how, you know, disingenuous it is. It's very born out of the feelings of young people in the 60s and early 70s. And so it makes sense that it took like calling through all of Hollywood stars <laughs> to like find a couple of nobodies that yeah. they could have like star in the film. Or people who were just attentive to that sense of malaise. Yeah, right. So beyond casting a movie with very different uh, new original characters, um, the other two elements I just wanted to highlight that made a major impact on the future of Hollywood um, were Nichols bringing on Robert Surtees as cinematographer and Simon and Garfunkel to do the music. I was going to ask, are any of these songs made for this movie? Mrs. Robinson it was. It is? Yes. I did not know if it was or wasn't. It was. I was so confused when it was actually in the movie because I thought it came out after the movie. It was first released as a part of the soundtrack. Cool. Yeah. I love it. So Sam Osteen is his editor now that he worked with on uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. They got along so well that they decided to keep working together forever. So while they're editing, they're using Simon and Garfunkel as scratch tracks, essentially to like pace the scenes out. Mm -hmm. And then they were like, what if we just called them up and asked if we could actually use the songs in the film? And so they agreed. And that's how we have their music in this film. Cool, cool. Of course, then they went on to write some other random incidental music. There is also another incidental composer who did some incidental Mm. music. And then they wrote Mrs. Robinson. I love that. I love it. So then the last thing is Robert Surtees. um, At the time, he was one of the most celebrated cinematographers. He had already won three Academy Awards, including For the Bad and the Beautiful and Ben-Hur. Oh, yeah. Um, He'd been nominated for seven total up to this point and would go on to be nominated 14 times total in his career. It was very abnormal for someone of his caliber to direct a picture like this at the time. Mm. At this point in his career, he was only doing stuff like Ben-Hur and like huge big budget stuff. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because then it allowed this film to make use of really amazing camera techniques, which Mm. were not usually employed in a film like this. Yeah. So Surtees said, quote, it took everything I had learned over 30 years to be able to do the job. I knew that Mike Nichols was a young director who went in for a lot of camera. We did more things in this picture than I ever did in one film. And it was also like, they went underwater for this. Yeah. They did a lot of interesting zoom shots and used huge lenses like, the scene where he's running, making it yeah. look like he's running forever and ever and going nowhere. <laughs> um, so, yeah, just a lot of stuff that really influenced the future of Hollywood. Yeah. Well, and a really creative way to make images multifaceted, I felt like. And I know that this is film bro stuff, so obviously it's been talked about a million times. But the idea that, like, something can be influential to the plot and also like just hilarious and devastating at the same time like when elaine is sitting there and they're at the like the club and the woman is dancing right behind her Mm -hmm. and elaine's just crying oh my gosh i thought i was gonna pee my pants but also it's like a horrible moment or like when he's in the pool and he's like trying to surface and his dad pushes him back down yeah (laughs) well and there's so much like visual metaphor yeah and it's one of the first films to really employ it like throughout the entire film like as soon as you get into the moment of 
uh, Mrs. Robinson stalking him, mm-hmm. there's a huge jungle like behind them out in their backyard <laughs> through the window. And like she's wearing like, like a cheetah a, print or yeah. a leopard print or something. Right. And so it's all very like, I don't know. You can see it all. Yeah. You get the feeling even without a lot of dialogue. Yeah. So just wanted to mention the awards that these films won. So The Graduate only won one award, and that was for Mike Nichols as uh, Best Director. So congrats to him. Deserved. Yeah. Bonnie and Clyde ended up winning two awards. Funny enough, they won Best Cinematography over The Graduate. Wow, crazy. And then also an award that I definitely did not think was deserved, uh, Best Supporting Actress for Estelle Parsons. She was my least favorite character in the whole film. She's like the straight character in the film. Hmm. And she basically spends the whole film screaming about what everybody's doing wrong. Which <laughs> Maybe that's why they liked her. I'm wondering if that's why. Yeah. They're like because she's this like is the warning. one voice of reason in yeah. the film. They're like, this is a warning to all of you creators out there that we are not going to honor these bad characters. Yeah. But all that to say, the times are changing. The times do be changing. Hollywood is on a new path. I love it. I'm excited about it. All these new kids in Hollywood with their newfangled ideas. Yeah, they're like, want to talk about things truthfully and show the way things are. Well, and it's really opening up Hollywood to, to a very individualistic. It's like the first round of very individualistic filmmaking mm, coming yeah. out of the studio system. Totally. Well. Great. Lots of uh, stuff there. Yeah. Shall we get on to the next topic? Yeah. So today I am talking about the one, the only Audrey Hepburn. And I am dreading this because there's so much out there about Audrey Hepburn. And it is delightful. Let me tell you, she is a wonderful woman to learn about because she's multifaceted. She's kind She's clever. She's adorable. Like, I I know that this is, like, why girls get obsessed with her. Well, and she's one of those, like, artistic Hollywood types where, like, the more you read about her, the more you like her. Yeah. And the stuff that is very surface level is the stuff that's the least interesting. The breakfast at Tiffany's look with the, like, mm-hmm. cute little quotes about, I'm possible means that nothing's impossible the word itself says i'm possible like those little pinteresty <laughs> things like that is not what we're talking about today huh. just so you're aware um and the reason i want to talk about her is that at the uh, 40th academy awards ceremony she is nominated for the final time in her career mm-hmm. for best actress uh for the film wait until dark so this is my last chance to talk about her so i figure i should take it and let's get into it another great film from this year oh yeah it was awesome we didn't even get to talk about it at all yeah it's a good movie great very. play great script so fun mm-hmm. and she's really good yeah very good anyway. yeah anyways all right let's talk about her um just some fun little facts about her to kind of start like just so you can understand her multifacetedness she of course is an incredible humanitarian. That is one of the main things about her that I want to highlight and reinforce is that she cared so deeply for people because of her own experiences. She has so many charities and foundations that are named after her because of her incredible work. Mm -hmm. Um, She also was just like a fun person, but she was very introverted. She loved to be home. She, for a while, had a pet deer, yeah, which is really cute. And uh, it was something for a film that they like wanted her to try having this deer around for the film. And then she loved him and 
kept him and of course did stuff with him because he was so stinking cute yeah i love the pictures of her with him like in the supermarket supermarket. yeah i know it's just too adorable her family loved her she loved being a mom that was one of the greatest parts of her life and she took uh early retirement because she wanted to be there for her kids and they have great things to say about her Mm -hmm. they've both written lots of stuff about her and their experience of having her as mother you know also lovely and of course she's an egot winner yeah so uh, you know and many other awards as well Mm -hmm. but she's the whole package oh style icon You can listen to my episode about Edith Head and learn all about her style. Yeah. All right. Let's get started. So she was born on May 4th, 1929 in Belgium. Her mother was Baroness Ella von Heemstra, which I'm so sorry if I butchered that. My apologies. uh, Who was a Dutch noblewoman. Her father, as I mentioned at the top of this episode, was Joseph Victor Anthony Rustin and eventually Hepburn Rustin because of his lineage. Mm -hmm. That was untrue. She spent the early part of her life very privileged, sheltered. Uh, And she traveled between countries because her father was an international salesman during some of that time. So she was just very well versed in lots of different cultures and was always uh, at good schools wherever she was. Her father supported the British Union of Fascists and abandoned his family to move to London to get more deeply involved in the fascist movement. So strange. He never visited. He never came back. So weird. Yeah. And of course, he was a major supporter of the Nazis and all that kind of stuff. Um, Audrey refers to this as, quote, the most traumatic event of her life. She never recovered from this abandonment, and it caused her to have deep separation anxiety and difficult relationships, as most people whose father leaves them do. Mm -hmm. And she did reach out to him as an adult, and he rebuffed her advances, and so they never, you know, rekindled their relationship. Hmm. Um, She was living with her mother in London, attending a private school when Britain declared war on Germany in 1939. Up to this point, she lived a very normal childhood, very well educated, uh, but things really changed when the war started. Uh, Ella, her mother, moved her and her daughter back to Arnhem in the Netherlands uh, in hopes that the Netherlands would remain neutral. Uh, Unfortunately, didn't end up working out well for them. During this time, uh, before anything had really happened, she attended Arnhem Conservatory to study ballet and very quickly became their star pupil, and she found a deep love for ballet. Unfortunately, uh, her family was deeply traumatized once the German occupation began. Mm. Uh, She and her family were Dutch aristocrats and like very high up in the society whatever so they changed their names to sound less english to sound more in like more discreet um they tried to kind of hide their place in society mm-hmm. uh and very sadly and uh, traumatically in 1942 her uncle otto van limburg Stierum, who i'm again sorry uh who was her mother's older sister's husband but her uncle was executed as retaliation for resistance activism even though he was not directly involved with the incident that had happened they used him as a way to kind of make a point Mm. and this you know distressed the family incredibly um her half brother was also deported to a german labor camp which caused her other half brother to have to go into hiding because they were looking for him her family was fractured they also lost all of their property all of their belongings all of their money and estate um just really devastated author robert mattson uh did provide evidence in a book that came out in 2019. There was some speculation for a long time about what Audrey Hepburn's relationship to 
the resistance was, you know, what she was doing during this time. But he finally essentially found the receipts of Mm. her work during this time. Um, She began to give underground concerts to raise money. She delivered the underground newspaper, taking messages and food down to allied flyers who were hiding in the woodlands. She also volunteered at a hospital that was at the center of resistance activities. And her family temporarily hid a paratrooper in their home during the Battle of Arnhem in order to keep him safe. Hmm. Uh, So she was very active and she was, you know, using the arts in a way that could raise money and could help the resistance. Of course, she was horrifically scarred by witnessing the transportation of Dutch Jews to concentration camps and other horrors of the occupation. And even more sadly... After D-Day, conditions grew significantly worse, and the Dutch famine in winter of 1944 caused her family to nearly starve, and they ended up resorting to making flour out of tulip bulbs just to survive. Mm -hmm. And of course, because of this, she developed acute anemia and lots of other issues due to malnutrition. So, dark times. Mm -hmm. When the war ended in 1945, she and her family moved to Amsterdam. Um, Their fortune was gone. They had nothing anymore, so they had to remake themselves. Her mother had to get a job. Essentially, Audrey had to find ways to support herself. She began ballet training with Dutch master Sonia Gaskell and Russian teacher Olga Tarasova. And because of this, she made great strides in her performance, and she was accepted with a scholarship to Ballet Rambert, which was in London. Hmm. So she moved there to support herself with uh, modeling work and do the ballet in hopes of joining their company, essentially. Hmm. Sadly, she was told by the ballet that she would never make prima ballerina due to her weak constitution Hmm. from the effects of the war and the malnutrition, and also because of her height. It kind of just was the end of her ballet career officially. Mm -hmm. She tried to, you know, continue, but they were essentially like, you really should find something else to do. So she decides to focus on acting instead. She got a singing instructor. And during this time of her life, she made some appearances as a chorus girl in shows in the West End. Um, And she booked some really small, very tiny roles uh, in some films and on some television shows that were happening on the BBC. Uh, Her first major role was in the film, secret people in which she played a ballerina and this was really lovely for her because she was able to do her own sequences and she was like the star ballerina that Mm -hmm. everyone thought was the best so you know got to live out that fantasy a little bit oh and by the way her very first ever film debut of any kind was doing an educational video teaching dutch to english speakers but anyways yeah so her first film with a major role was secret people After this, she was cast in the English and French film Monte Carlo Baby, which filmed in Monte Carlo. Mm -hmm. And coincidentally, which the stars aligned for Audrey, (laughs) like truly, uh, novelist Colette was staying at the same hotel at the same time. Uh And upon seeing Audrey Hepburn, offered her the role of Gigi in the new play Gigi. Yeah. She had never spoken on stage before because she'd only been a chorus girl. Mm-hmm. And so she required a personal trainer, but they really wanted her and she decided to go for it. And the show brought her a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was considered kind of less quality than the French film that had already come out, uh, but people really liked her in it. Yeah. The New York Times stated that, quote, her quality is so winning and so right that she is the success of the evening. And she ended up staying with the show through the Broadway run and the national tour from November 24th, 1951 to May 16, 1953. Wow. Which is a real long time to stay committed to one show. And if you want to know more about Gigi. And Colette and the yeah, chaos of all that. You can listen to our episode all about Gigi. <laughs> yeah. 
the later <laughs> film that won Best Picture. Yeah. Uh, during this time, she while she was doing the show, she got engaged to industrialist James Hansen. They set a date. She fitted a dress, but then publicly called off the marriage before it happened because their careers were keeping them apart. They were both just too busy. And mm. she then said the quote that is famous, quote, when I get married, I want to be really married. Mm-hmm. That was about him. So uh, let's get into Roman Holiday, which is the next thing she does, yeah. which is just so crazy. It's so early in her career. So on September 18th, 1951, shortly after her first film, Secret People, was finished, but before its premiere, uh, the writer, director, producer of it, Thorold Dickinson, did a screen test with her and sent it to director William Wyler, who was Mm -hmm. in Rome at the time preparing for Roman Holiday. And one of the things that the two of them decided to do, which I know is one of those things people talk about, is they just left the cameras rolling so that you could see who she was when she wasn't performing. And they gave William Wyler a great idea about her personality and just her magnetism and how sweet and attractive she was. Wyler, after this, wrote a glowing note of thanks to Dickinson, saying that, quote, as a result of the test, a number of the producers at Paramount have expressed interest in casting her. Mm -hmm. The producers for Roman Holiday had initially wanted Elizabeth Taylor for the role, uh, but William Wyler was so impressed by her screen test, Audrey Hepburn's screen test, that is, that he just cast her instead. Uh, Later, he said, quote, she had everything I was looking for, charm, innocence, and talent. She was also very funny. She was absolutely enchanted. And we said, that's the girl. And, you know, we've talked about Roman Holiday on a past episode, so I'm not going to get too much into the making and success of that. But um, one of the things that I, of course, think is sweet is that uh, originally it was going to be a film that only billed Gregory Peck uh, with his name above the title with introducing Audrey Hepburn beneath in a smaller font. However, Gregory Peck suggested to William Wyler that he elevate her billing so that her name appeared before the title in type as large as his, saying, quote, you've got to change that because she'll be a big star and I'll look like a big jerk. Yeah. (laughs) Good for Gregory Peck. (laughs) But if you want to know more about that, we have another episode. (laughs) Yep. There's lots about everything at this point. Uh, So, of course, Roman Holiday is an immediate success, uh, and she wins the Oscar for Best Actress for this, her first big American film. Yeah. She also becomes the first person to win the Oscar, the BAFTA, and the Golden Globe, all for a single role. Good for her. Which, well-deserved. She was great. Sweetly enough, during this time, she went to a cocktail party at Gregory Peck's home, which is where she met actor Mel Ferrer. They hit it off, and she suggested that they work on a play together, which led to them starring on Broadway that year in the play Undine. Eight months later, they got married in Switzerland, and they were married for 14 years and had one son together. Uh, So as I mentioned, of course, she returns to Broadway that year, and she won the Tony for that production of Undine. Yeah. Three days after winning the Oscar for Roman Holiday, Uh which is just wild. Big, big Week for Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, amazing. She is one of three ladies to win an Oscar and a Tony in the same year. The other two are Shirley Booth in the past and Ellen Burstein in the future. Mm-hmm. It's just, she burst onto the scene. Like, yeah, everyone, everyone was enamored by her. They loved her style. They loved her personality. She became the girl people wanted to emulate, you know. In 1955, that year, she was in no films. She didn't put out a film that year, but she received the Golden Globe for World Film Favorite, (laughs) even though she didn't do anything that year. She was just the favorite. So after Roman Holiday, she followed this up with a series of well-received films like Sabrina, War and Peace, Funny Face, Love in the Afternoon, The Nun Story. 
1961, she did, of course, the most iconic film of her career, Breakfast at Tiffany's, which I, I, I don't know. We didn't get into it when it happened. I feel like we could have done an episode about that, but... Well, and she's also so much better in so many other of her films. Yeah, it's not my favorite film, but it's the one that is iconic. Yeah. Um, and it's mostly iconic for her clothes. The little black dress has been coined the most famous little black dress of all time. And Moon River. Moon River. Also the Manic Pixie Dream Girl stuff. It's just like very informative to pop culture and womanhood and all these things. Mm-hmm. And, you know romance and whatever she stated about the role that quote it was the jazziest of my career i'm an introvert playing the exaggerated girl was the hardest thing i ever did Hmm. so that's all i have to say about that because i don't care that much about breakfast at tiffany's yeah she followed this up with the william wyler drama the children's hour with shirley mclean yeah which is a great film and one of her most sensitive performances Mm -hmm. uh it's funny you mentioned bosley crawther kind of not doing well because during this time which is the mid to late 60s he does not give her good reviews. No. He doesn't like her performance in this. He doesn't like it in Charade. He thinks that she's overrated, that kind of thing. So he gives her a bad review. But Shirley MacLaine loved working with her. Mm-hmm. They became lifelong friends. They raised their kids together. It formed a really deep bond between the two of them. And it's a great movie. I yeah. mean, it's a William Wyler. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So her next film after this is Charade with Cary Grant. Uh he was very nervous about this picture. Um, he had previously been considered but turned down roles for both Roman Holiday and Sabrina, mostly because he was very uncomfortable with their 34-year age difference, mm-hmm. which is good for him for actually being uncomfortable about that. Yeah. I feel like most Hollywood men don't care. So in order to make him happy, the writers changed the script around so that in the movie, she's the one pursuing him as opposed to him pursuing her, uh, which pleased him. They make the movie. And he just had the best time with her. He said He said about it, quote, all I want for Christmas is another picture with Audrey Hepburn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and as I said, Bosley Crawler was less kind to her, saying, quote, Hepburn is cheerfully committed to a mood of how nuts can you be in an obviously comforting assortment of expensive Givenchy costumes, mm. which she did get very close with the designer. Yeah. But anyways... As we said, Bosley's getting a little off the pulse here. Yeah. So just to skip ahead a bit, some of her later films, she, uh, of course, is next in My Fair Lady, which I'm not going to talk about because we have a whole devoted episode to yeah, that film. Yeah, you can listen to another episode <laughs> of ours. Um, the main takeaway from it is that she thought she was going to sing. Mm-hmm. She ends up being dubbed by Marnie Nixon. She walks off the set because she's so upset but ends up giving a great performance. She does not get nominated for the role. Julie Andrews originated the role on Broadway, didn't get cast in My Fair Lady. Julie Andrews wins the Oscar that year. And the two ladies are civil and delightful to one another. And it all turns out fine. And she's recognized for doing a great job. And even Bosley Crawlers gave her a very glowing review about her performance in My Fair Lady. I mean, yeah, she's like, I mean... We raved about her in that episode, too. (laughs) Get on it, folks. We've got a lot of episodes out there. Yeah, some people are like, I know. Get on with it. Okay. Uh, She follows us up with several heist comedy films, which is always fun, Uh Uh, (laughs) which I'm not going to get into because it's a bunch of stuff that is fun if you want to watch it, but I didn't feel the need to watch it or figure it out. Um, How to Steal a Million. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
Which finally leads to her fifth and final Oscar nomination for Best Actress in the film Wait Until Dark. Yeah. Which brings us to the present day of our podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, This film was filmed on the brink of her divorce. um, And it was an extremely difficult process for her as her husband, Mel Ferrer, was its producer. And, uh, of course, she's going through all this emotional stuff. She lost 15 pounds under the stress of making the movie. But um, she found solace in her co-star Richard Crenna and director Terrence Young and made very deep connections with both of them because they really sympathized with her and helped her get through and do the thing that actors do, which is when you're going through something hard, you use it to fuel your art. And Mm -hmm. she gets to be a fighter in that movie, which I think is really cool when you're going through a hard thing in your own life. Mm -hmm. Bosley Crowther affirmed this role and said, quote, Hepburn plays the poignant role. The quickness with which she changes and the skill with which she manifests terror attract sympathy and anxiety to her and give her genuine solidity in the final scenes. Mm -hmm. So we're back on uh, Audrey's side. Nice. After this movie, because it was just a really hard experience for her, she went into Mm -hmm. semi-retirement. Right around this time, also after her divorce in 1968, she met her second husband, Andrea Doty, and they married six months later. They just... Got right down to business. They had a son together that same year, uh, Luca. And unfortunately, it was not a great marriage. Yeah. They were both unfaithful. Dodie had affairs with younger women. Audrey Hepburn was in an affair with Ben Gazzara later on when they filmed Bloodline in 1979. They actually were married for 13 years and they Mm. divorced in 1982, but it wasn't a pleasant time. Yeah. Despite that, she loved being a mother to Luca. Mm -hmm. And she, at this point, has two sons. And that is her dream life. She loves her children. Everything's good in that department for her. She returned from retirement in 1976 for Robin and Marion. Yeah. Opposite Sean Connery. And that film was well-received because it was kind of her comeback film. You know, it's cute, whatever. It's Uh, very fun. It's fun. And, you know, of course she's made Marion. After that, she did a string of films that just did not do well. Yeah. The last several films of her life like were not good. They were financial and box office flops. From 1980 to her death, though, she was in a committed relationship with Robert Walters, who was the widower to Merle Oberon, uh, mm-hmm. who has popped up in our history at different times. Um she loved this man. This guy was the guy for her. They never officially married, um, but she said that she considered them married, just not officially. And she just didn't want to get married again. She just couldn't bear it. But she loved him. He was her true partner. And she claims that these were the happiest years of her life. Yeah. So kind of just to wrap up the end of her life, um, in 1990, she filmed the PBS documentary Gardens of the World with Audrey Hepburn and won a posthumous Emmy for Outstanding Individual Achievement Informational Programming in 1991 and right after that in 1992 she won a posthumous grammy award for best spoken word album for children for audrey hepburn's enchanted tales Mm -hmm. so just really quick i would just want to go over a little bit of her ambassador work um so she was very involved in world affairs throughout her whole life and career because of her you know international childhood and the horrors that she had experienced during the war Um, she became a goodwill ambassador for unicef and Her team said of her during her travels, quote, often the kids would have flies all over them, but she would just go hug them. I had never seen that. Other people had a certain amount of hesitation, but she would just grab them. Children would come up to her and to hold her hand, touch her. She was like the Pied Piper. Um, (laughs) And the photographer loved her, of course, and just like followed her around, you know. UNICEF honored her legacy of humanitarian 
work by unveiling a statue, the Spirit of Audrey, at their headquarters in New York. She was also awarded the Jean Herschel Humanitarian Award posthumously for her work. And Mm. she has many, many charities, foundations, grants, things in her name because of the immense amount of work that she did, uh, mostly in Africa during the time. Yeah. Um, When she returned from Somalia in 1992, she developed abdominal pain that proved to be aggressive cancer. Um, So she returned with Robert Wolders to Switzerland for her final Christmas, uh, but unfortunately she couldn't fly anywhere commercially because of how much she had regressed. Mm -hmm. Um, So her friend and her designer and lifelong fashion inspiration, Hubert de Givenchy, arranged for his socialite acquaintance to send a private jet filled with flowers to take her to Geneva, where she peacefully died in her sleep in her home there. Mm. At her death before the funeral, Gregory Peck recorded a tribute to her reading the poem Unending Love, which, you know, is extremely sweet. And don't watch that if you <laughs> want to have a good night because you'll cry. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, I watched a bunch of stuff about her death. That was a bad move. I should not have done that today. Yeah. Many attended her funeral. Um, so many members of UNICEF. Uh, the Prince Sederukin Aga Khan, who was uh, one of the leaders at UNICEF at the time, gave the eulogy. Um, her pastor, who had done her marriages and her children's baptisms, presided over the funeral. Um, and many, many members and actors attended, along with her two children and her husbands, over mm-hmm. her life. They did not have ill will towards her. Yeah. How could you? Right. Flowers for the funeral were arranged and sent by Gregory Peck, Elizabeth Taylor, and the Dutch royal family. Cute. Yeah, too sweet. So I just want to end this section. Normally, I go over people's accomplishments and, you know, the awards they've won. Audrey Hepburn's won every award, (laughs) you know. So I kind of don't want to do that. What I would like to do is I'd like to share some quotes that people said about her Mm. because she's so famous for so many of her own quotes. But she's just such a delightful person. Mm -hmm. I mean... She's enchanting. And so here's what some people had to say about her. I've got two from Shirley MacLaine because she loved her. Mm-hmm. Audrey was the kind of person who, when she saw someone else suffering, tried to take their pain on herself. She was a healer. She knew how to love. You didn't have to be in constant contact with her to feel you had a friend. We always picked up right where we left off. And I also like this quote from her. I taught her how to cuss and she taught me how to dress. <laughs> uh, this is from Gregory Peck. Quote, it was my good luck during that wonderful summer in Rome to be the first of her screen fellows, to hold out my hand and help her keep her balance as she did her spins and pirouettes, making the whole world fall in love with her. Those months were probably the happiest experience I ever had making movies. Cute. Um, this is from her son, Sean, her first son. Style is a word we use often and for a multitude of purposes. In the case of my mother, Audrey Hepburn, it was an extension of an inner beauty held up by a life of discipline, respect for the other, and hope in humanity. If the lines were pure and elegant, it was because she believed in the power of simplicity. If there was a timelessness, it was because she believed in quality. And if she is still an icon of style today, it is because once she found her look, she stayed with it throughout her life. She didn't go with the trends. She didn't reinvent herself every season. She loved fashion, but she kept it as a tool to compliment her look, which I thought was important since she's so known for her look and her style. Mm-hmm, for sure. And finally, I'm going to give you a couple of her own quotes that may or may not have made it onto a Pinterest board at some point, Uh-oh. but who cares? These are all from her. Quote, life is a party. Dress for it. To plant a garden is to believe in tomorrow. Good things aren't supposed to just fall into your lap. God is very generous, but he expects you to do your part first. Paris is always a good idea. There's more to sex appeal than just measurements. I don't need a bedroom to prove my womanliness. I can convey just as much sex appeal picking apples off a tree or standing in the rain. 
Makeup can only make you look pretty on the outside, but it doesn't help if you're ugly on the inside, unless you eat the makeup. <laughs> and finally, the most infamous of all, I believe in pink. I believe that laughing is the best calorie burner. I believe in kissing, kissing a lot. I believe in being strong when everything seems to be going wrong. I believe that happy girls are the prettiest girls. I believe that tomorrow is another day, and I believe in miracles. And I know that that is the most overset quote ever, and it still gets me. Hmm. She's just such a lovely lady. That's true. Oh, gosh. All right. So that is the life of Audrey Hepburn. Incredible woman. Delight on the screen. Watch all her movies. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I have to say. Great. And before we leave you, we like to thank the Academy for things relating to this year in film, this episode, these people. What would you like to thank the Academy for today, <laughs> Kristen? Boy, I would like to thank the Academy for the resilience to try again. And yeah. this is such a small thing, but, you know, her dreams got crushed. She didn't get to be a ballerina. And instead of becoming an accountant or whatever, she says, okay, what else do I love? What else can I do? And she pursued it. And it didn't happen right away for her. You know, mm -hmm. it took time she had to do a bunch of shows and television roles as bit characters or nothing at all you know and to me that is the kind of thing I love to hear about people's lives and their stories because you have to have that perseverance otherwise you'll never get anywhere so I thank the academy for that mm -hmm. I would similarly like to thank the academy for people taking their career into their own hands <laughs> uh we talk about uh, Burt Lancaster doing this many times. We've talked about many of his movies and <laughs> ventures, but you know, there's new people coming onto the scene here, like Warren Beatty, who are just like, all right, I gotta do this. Yeah, let me figure it out. I gotta do something different, and it's cool. Like he is of the new wave of people who are producers and actors, which is yeah. really cool to get into that sort of realm, mm -hmm. because that is more so what Hollywood is now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Um. So thanks to them, those people who are like, enough is enough. I want to do it my way. <laughs> I would like to thank the Academy for evocative images. Oh, yeah. Images that just stick with you that you can't forget about that make you laugh and cringe and feel the deep distress and weight of the world all in one without saying a single thing. I'm looking at you, Dustin Hoffman underwater or... <laughs> Elaine with a, a stripper's jake and her tatas behind her. Yeah. I mean, that's like one of my favorite things I've ever seen on the screen. Very so. memorable. Yeah. I love that. Um, And I would like to thank the Academy for casting some nobodies. Huzzah. You know, mentioned it before, but casting Dustin Hoffman in this also leads to new, like, beauty ideals in yeah, a way in totally. Hollywood. It's... The leading man is gone. Ah, oh, yes. For yes. a time. <laughs> now we get some oddballs yeah, in here. Yeah, that's true. We're going to get some weirdos <laughs> coming up. <laughs> Buckle up for that one. Another one whose uh, first film was Bonnie and Clyde, Gene Wilder. <laughs> Bursting onto the scene. Quite an oddball. Quite. Not your typical uh, leading man type. No. But he is the new leading man type of the 70s. <laughs> in the same vein i mean audrey hepburn was nobody and they mm -hmm. put her in roman holiday and what magic it created mm -hmm. take a chance people yeah 
And with that, we leave you until next week. Yeah, thanks for uh, joining us. We had a lot of content today, so thanks for uh, soaking all that up. I hope it was fun. It was fun for me. in a new Hollywood golden age. Yeah, it's exciting. There's so much to get into anymore. Yeah, and next week we will be getting into another eh, classic, the 41st Best Picture winner, Oliver. Yeah! Oliver, Oliver. (laughs) I'm very excited. (laughs) Talk to you then. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in to Thank the Academy. You can follow us on social media at Thank the Academy Podcast on Instagram and at Thank Academy Pod on Twitter. If you enjoy listening to the show, make sure to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your favorite streaming platform. The theme song was created by the one and only Noah Heisinger. Join us next week on Thank the Academy.